What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. This year has been one of relative pain for the retail industry, at least outside of Walmart and Amazon, with a lot of brick and mortar stores closing, uh, companies reconsidering their balance sheets. What will next year bring? With us to discuss is Ed Iruma. He's an equity research analyst covering retail and e-commerce for KeyBank Capital Markets in New York and just comes from the KeyBank Capital Markets Consumer Conference, which went uh, from through today. And Ed, we're so happy to have you. And uh, what are you looking for for next year? Glad to be here. Look, I think one of the things that's been an interesting takeaway from the conference is that results seem to have gotten a little bit better toward the end of this year. And so we think that you know better demand plus hopefully inventory levels that are aligned should drive a much better 2018. All right, a much better 2018. That's a very general statement. What are the pressures that you see afflicting the retailers on a day when we find out that Walmart is even taking the word stores out of their name? It is an interesting move by Walmart. I mean, certainly, um, you know, Amazon is the innovator in retail today. And we've seen, as you pointed out, a Walmart that has been incredibly innovative as well and, you know, is, is racing to catch up. And I think what we've been hearing from retailers here at the conference and even prior to the conference is the continued focus on e-commerce, right? This is a business that requires constant investment. The consumer's notion of what e-commerce is or should be is changing. Uh, and certainly those best-in-class competitors like an Amazon and Walmart continue to get better. Okay, but so, did, you see, did you hear anything at your conference that made you think, gee, this is something I hadn't thought of before, or these guys have really figured out a way to do something that no one else has? What have you learned from the conference? You know, one thing that we've heard that's pretty interesting is there's been this rush of companies to sell on Amazon, and I think there's a lot of discussion today on, is that actually the right decision for my business? And what I mean by that specifically is uh, Amazon is a great place if you're not seeing promotions other places in the market. But if one competitor promotes, Amazon matches it, and that drives down price. So we're now hearing retailers and apparel vendors rethink whether having their product in, uh, having that on the Amazon platform uh, is the way to go. Well, having said that, though, I was reading a story today that Publicis, WPP, and Omnicom, these are the big ad firms, they plan to boost ad spending with Amazon between 40 and 100% next year. WPP says that uh, it's currently spending around $200 million. That could increase about 50%. Publicis spends anywhere from two to $300 million on Amazon. And uh, Omnicom spends about $100 million a year. They say they could double that amount next year. So, I mean, is that something that the companies at your conference didn't recognize, or are they going in another direction? 
I think they certainly recognize that Amazon is the dominant force in retail. The question is, is it best to have your products on Amazon or is it best to try to have them uh, be sold directly on your website? I'd also add, we've heard a lot of conversation here about Walmart and what they're doing with Lord & Taylor and whether it makes sense for more partners to uh, be on that Walmart platform uh, that, quite frankly, is in a much earlier stage of development. What'd they say? Uh, I think they're very open to it. You know, I I think uh, they clearly like Lord & Taylor. Lord & Taylor has lots of existing relationships, and to be on that Walmart platform with traffic uh, could be very exciting. So I heard from numerous companies here that this was something that they were actively involved in discussions around. So you hear constantly, what's your Amazon strategy? We think next year you're going to hear more of this, what's your Walmart strategy? So, Ed, uh, just shifting gears a little bit, are more people going to be wearing yoga pants to work next year? Uh, certainly comfort is a big theme that we're continuing to hear. What's interesting is that that comfort that you used to only get in that yoga pant is now you're able to get that in denim that stretches. You're able to get that in other types of apparel. And so uh, certainly comfort is going to continue to be big. Is that specifically yoga pants? Time will tell. Well, I'm talking specifically athleisure because I know there were some pretty disappointing earnings this year from the likes of Nike and Under Armour. And you're going to get Lululemon results after the market closes today. So we'll be watching for that. Some as of well. those transparent yoga pants. But, but what's, your, what's your sense for athleisure? Oh, there's certainly a little bit of pressure. You know, I think this has been a great growth market for almost 10 years now. And certainly, uh, as the market slowed, we've we've seen a little bit of change in performance. Um, we had Kevin Plank uh, doing a, a talk yesterday, and I think he was pretty forthright in the challenges that his business has faced both in 17 uh, and as this market continues to see that level of disruption. So uh, no all clear yet uh, in, in sports and, and, and athletic, um, but, you know, we are hopeful that at least this very, very volatile 17 uh, ends up being uh, leading a path to hopefully a more calm 18. Ed, where are we with respect to brick-and-mortar store closures? How many are you expecting or people in the industry expecting next year? Uh, this is one area where the trend is likely not to change. We continue to hear retailers talking about store closures, uh, examining you know, kind of what's the optimum store footprint. Um, and so I think 18 will be a repeat of 17. I, I continue to think that uh, we're going to see focus shift to e-com. I think, though, the offset, and this we did hear quite frequently, it's that the store fleet that you do have should be compelling. It should be engaging. It should bring a sense of community. So we had uh, companies like Shinola, which is um, largely a direct brand, talking about the strength of having a store fleet. So clearly the number of stores are coming down, but hopefully the stores that remain in existence are more interesting. Just quickly, uh, Harman International, which is owned by Samsung, they announced that they've got a combination with uh, Under Armour for what's called the UA Sport Wireless Flex Headphones. Is that the kind of thing that uh, Under Armour and companies like that, apparel makers, should be focused on? Obviously, the convergence of technology uh, is impacting all industries, but certainly in apparel. Um, Under Armour understands, you know, they've got a great data platform, so they know uh, how long your run is, they know what you've been eating. Uh, and so to capitalize on that by giving you other tech products around that I think are really important. But ultimately, what's going to drive the success of Under Armour is selling more shirts and shoes. Clearly. And that's been a challenge for them. The shares of Under Armour are down more than 54% so far this year. Thanks very much, Ed Iruma. He is equity research analyst covering retail and e-commerce for KeyBank Capital Markets.
President Donald Trump is set to make a statement on Jerusalem from the diplomatic reception room in the White House. Uh, That will take place at uh, 1 p.m. Eastern time. We'll, of course, bring that to you live. And to uh, speak more about the topic of uh, foreign relations, we have with us Caitlin Weber, our Bloomberg News government analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, and Nick Wadhams, our foreign policy reporter. Nick, let's begin with you. What do we expect the president to say in any detail about Jerusalem as the capital of Israel? Uh, Well, he will uh, say that the U.S. recognizes Jerusalem as Israel's capital, and he will also uh, direct the State Department to begin the process, which is expected to take uh, many years, you know, at least four or five years, of uh, uh, the the process of uh, building an embassy there. Um, He will continue to sign a waiver as required under U.S. law, um, that he'll keep the embassy for now in Tel Aviv, but really this is a, a, a symbolic move where yeah. he will declare that uh, the U.S. recognizes that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Uh, Nick and Caitlin, I'm going to get to you in one, in one second, but Nick, you say it's a symbolic move, but it's one that's gotten a lot of attention worldwide. Of course, the Middle East has been a spot of incredible tensions, and the U.S. allies are coming out sharply critical of this move, saying that it will hinder any attempts to broker a peace agreement. Just quickly, uh, do you think that this could have a much bigger consequence than it might seem just based on its sort of symbolic uh, nature? Yeah, I mean, the, the concern about from allies um, about this move is that it will basically prejudge uh, negotiations over the status of, his, of Jerusalem as worked out in any negotiation. And then also it would uh, sort of cast doubt on the idea that the U.S. is a neutral uh, and unbiased arbiter in these negotiations. If the U.S. is willing to recognize uh, Jerusalem as the capital, uh, as Israel's capital, then uh, it is biased uh, toward Israel and against the Palestinians uh, in these negotiations and can't be seen as a sort of uh, an honest and neutral broker. So it's, it's important also to think that the relationship that the U.S. has with its allies will also uh, dictate some of the path of the ongoing tensions with North Korea. Caitlin, can you just bring us up to uh, up to speed with respect to the state of play in North Korea, the, uh, the sort of exercises that have been going on uh, with South Korea and the U.S. and kind of where our allies stand right now? Yeah, so over the past year, we've really seen tensions between the West and North Korea kind of ebb and flow. Um, Earlier this fall, it looked like they were sort of um, decreasing. Uh, They had been, you know, a couple of months when North Korea didn't launch any any missile tests. That all changed last late last month um, when North Korea really escalated um, its test to launching the the potentially the furthest reaching ICBM missile it had. Um, had so far. So, you know, looking sort of, you know, to next year, we think it could be potentially a really decisive year in that conflict. Um, some people think it may be the sort of the last chance to prevent North Korea from becoming really a full-fledged nuclear weapons power. And there's a n- number of really sensitive events on the on the calendar next year, um, including the Olympics in South Korea in February, and then also the the end of the, the the anniversary of the end of the Korean War and the anniversary of the founding of North Korea. Those are both events that are often marked with missile tests. 
Caitlin, if you could comment on the uh, perhaps not the bipartisan and uh, the more unilateral approach on the part of U.S. foreign policy under President Donald Trump, because I believe that allies uh, such as uh, U.K. Prime Minister uh, Theresa May uh, coming out and uh, offering negative comments about uh, the uh, upcoming speech that President Trump is going to make uh, detailing uh, Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. So he's got allies who do not agree with that stand. Mm -hmm. I think in terms of North Korea, um, the Trump administration has sort of gone back and forth between whether or not they want to um, work with China and the UN in terms of pressuring Pyongyang to sort of come into line. Um, you know, the there was uh, UN sanctions about six months ago that went into place. Um, and since then, uh, the U.S. has passed um, much stronger unilateral sanctions, something that was really looked at um, negatively by the Chinese government. It's it's unclear, um, you know, what going forward, what the Trump administration's stance will be, whether they want to continue to go it alone or or work sort of more multilaterally. I think you know, North Korea before it agrees to to talks is it's likely going to you know going to have to be a, a high level multilateral effort. Nick, uh, come on in here. I, I want to talk about just generally the U.S. foreign policy. I know there's been a lot of criticism aimed at Rex Tillerson, questions about whether he will remain in place as Secretary of State. Uh, I'm just wondering, is there behind the scenes more cohesion among the foreign policy wonks in this administration than perhaps it might seem from the outside? Uh, my impression is there is not cohesion, and and one of the challenges that we've faced in reporting out uh, the foreign policy priorities of this administration is uh, you never really know who is calling the shots or or what the priorities are. I mean, if you look at North Korea, for example, uh, you saw the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. Nikki Haley make remarks at a Security Council meeting uh, last week where she basically gave uh, a sort of policy prescription that was uh, different from what the State Department said. She said countries should cut off all ties with North Korea and uh, sever all diplomatic ties. Uh, when we questioned the State Department spokeswoman on that um, a day later, uh, she said uh, she wouldn't go that far. She said that uh, essentially they're encouraging countries to reduce ties, but she wouldn't say they wanted uh, countries to cut off all ties. So, I mean, that's just a small example of something we face all the time where you never quite know who is speaking for the president, who is speaking for U.S. U.S policy because in the different branches and the different agencies there are substantive differences uh, on what various people say the U.S. Uh, is doing and should be doing. Is there, is there any surprise uh, that the oil prices are actually lower today as a result of this? I mean, normally you would say, all right, there's turmoil in the Middle East and there are going to be problems because of some policy change on the part of the United States. You don't see any, uh, any reaction in the market. Well, I mean, we will see. It'll, I think we really have to wait until after the president speaks. Everybody I've been talking to at the State Department says, "Wait till you, wait, wait till you hear what he says." It will be a more uh, nuanced speech than you than you think. Um, but so far, uh, yes, there people are saying that they have not seen a great deal of uh, protest um, outside U.S. embassies on the street in in places like Cairo. Uh, so uh, a muted response so far, but the real test will be after the president delivers his speech. 
And of course, uh, we're also looking at what the trade ramifications will be with some of our allies stemming from the tax plan, because uh, it evidently is uh, being met with some criticism overseas. Caitlin Weber, government analyst uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence, focusing on U.S. trade policy, as well as well as Nick Wadhams, foreign policy reporter for Bloomberg News. Uh, both of you, thank you so much for your insights. Uh, definitely a lot of moving pieces, hard to get your arms around. Uh, but really, Pim, when we talk to people with it's going to affect the markets uh, are some of these trade tensions that are picking up. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Well, the company is Trinzeo, and its chief executive is Chris Pappas, and he joins us here in our 1130 studios. And Trinzeo, uh, well, it has uh, its fingers in many different industries, automotive, building, as well as electrical, medical, packaging. It's in the plastics business, as we remember. Chris, thank you very much for being here. Much yeah, appreciated. Uh, I wanted to just skip ahead uh, to uh, Hurricane Harvey and the uh, mm. rebuilding efforts that have gone on, because I know that uh, several of your facilities were affected by the, the hurricane. And I wonder if you could just give us a quick update on yeah. what's going on. Well, we had, uh, in our case, actually no real impact on our facilities. Um, we were uh, a distance from the hurricane in Louisiana. So in our case... Um, we had a short-term lift because our facilities were up and running while others were not. But more broadly, the hurricane, uh, while devastating, of course, for the region, um, is going to stimulate construction activity post for rebuilding and automotive. You know, something like a million cars will have to be replaced uh, over the course of the next year or so. So aside from uh, blips or, or sort of uh, temporary effects from the hurricanes, I'd love to get your take just overall of what you're seeing with respect to demand, because Trinseo really has a, uh, a pretty uh, amazing view of the economy since the products are in everything from automake, uh, automobiles to smartphones to anything else that you buy that has uh, plastic components. Right. We, we cross over many applications, as you mentioned, uh, you know, including carpet, construction, packaging. And we do it globally, so we have a good view. Now, 60, 62% of our sales are in Europe, so we have a better view of Europe, of course, than the Americas, where we have 20% and Asia, 20%. But, you know, we're pretty constructive on all of those segments. Um, um, and when we gave our guidance, for example, for next year, which we just, just came out with, about $7.90 a share of earnings, we did not forecast any real uplift in the economy from 17 to 18. We generally felt the economy of 18 would be similar to 17, which is pretty modest, actually, in terms of actual growth. And you're talking global here. And we're talking global here. So we're thinking in a 2 2.5% two uh, you know, economic growth agenda to drive our earnings growth. But if we had more than that, if the economies, in fact, grew faster, because we're in so many different segments, we would generally see a rise across all those segments. I'm fascinated by this because we've been hearing from a number of strategists saying that the Fed's going to hike four times next year, that we're reaching the synchronized global growth story. Uh, this forecast that you just 
gave out their flies in the face of that. Why well, are you bearish? Uh, no, we're not bearish. We're saying that uh, we can see a rise in our earnings. This year we forecast about 760 a share, next year 790. We're saying that we can see a rise in our earnings independent of whether there is in fact a global lift. So when we gave our guidance, we were just saying that on the basis of today's economic activity, we could see earnings next year of $7.90. If in fact the economy grows globally, then we would in fact have generally higher earnings than that. So we're not bearish, we just wanted to make that reference to our forecast, to our earnings guidance. I just wanna make it even simpler. You make the plastic that makes Lego blocks, isn't that right? Well, that's an application that yeah. we are in, of course, yeah. along with many, 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 many others. No, yes. no, I yeah. clearly, but yeah. I mean, you know, everybody knows uh, sure. yeah. Lego. Or yogurt, or, yo or yogurt cups would be another example. Okay, sure. very good. Yeah. Um, tell us about a business in China, because I know that you've just really uh, started production there at a new plant. We have a new plant. We've been in China for years. We're, we're in China, we're in Korea, we're in Indonesia with, with assets, with plants and sales, of course. But we just started up a new plastics facility, an ABS plant, we call it, which is used in engineered applications, automotive, appliance, smartphones. And we put it in China, and we just started up a month ago on time, on budget, because of the growth in that particular region for those markets. And the kind of material we make there is relatively unique compared to others. And our customers, mainly automotive, want us to be where they're going to be building their cars, which of course is in China. So in that scenario, it made sense for us to put that asset in China, which we did. Which uh, product do you think will be the biggest growth story next year? I think two. Uh, our rubber products for high-performance tires, where we also have a new plant coming up in January in Germany, and our engineered performance plastics, where we have the new plant in China. Those two will be our growth story for next year. Now, we on our investor day about a year and a half ago, we suggested uh, $100 million of EBITDA growth in performance plastics, and we outlined investments that would drive that. Two of those are the rubber plant in, in uh, Germany and the ABS plant in China. So we're delivering on those investments as we described in November of, of uh, 2016. Is it easy to raise money? Uh, we have, well, we have a fantastic balance sheet. You know, we're, our leverage is 1.3 times we're generating, we have the highest free cash flow yield of anybody in the chemical space at about 13%. So we have very strong cash flows. We just refinanced our balance sheet just a few months ago. Um, we, we have a terrific balance sheet in our case. But the answer to your question is, it is easy to raise money if you need to raise money. In our case, we have a stellar balance sheet, lots of free cash flow, lots of capability to grow. Any more acquisitions with, Without maybe? having to access the, the capital markets. We just completed our first acquisition. API, right? In API, in Italy. successful, nice company in, in Italy that makes um, thermoplastic elastomers, very nice product line. We're looking, but it's hard. It's really hard. Valuations are high, um, very hard to do acquisitions. In our view, in today's market, high valuations, tough to do. Chris Pappas, thank you so much for joining us. A thank pleasure you. speaking with you. Chris nice Pappas is Chief Executive Officer of Trincio, uh, which is based in Pennsylvania, but has uh, plants and sells products all over the world. Uh, it's amazing how big the market is for all the stuff uh, that you buy, all the components, the plastics uh, and, uh, and such.
A year ago, if you asked many credit fund managers, they would say we're in the eighth, maybe ninth inning. This year, perhaps we're in the seventh inning, or perhaps we're in the eleventh inning. We're going to go extra innings uh, to fifteen. Here to talk about that is Frank Osino. He is senior portfolio manager at New Fleet Asset Management, which oversees twelve billion dollars and is based in Hartford. Uh, thank you so much, Frank, for joining us. I want to start with how close we are to the end of this credit cycle, because we have gotten a couple calls recently from some pretty high profile uh, credit investors that we're getting toward the end. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, I would say we're in a very long seventh inning right now. Uh, whenever we have a benign credit environment, historically, it's very easy to say that the end is two years out. Uh, in 05, we were talking about, two th- in, in 15, we were talking about 2017 being the end. Uh, what we're seeing right now is fundamentally, Uh, we're in good shape. It's still a benign credit environment. Defaults are low. Balance sheets are in good shape. There's not a lot of debt due. And interest coverage is strong. Um, We are starting to see some late cycle behavior, uh, aggressive terms, loosening of credit standards. uh, But by and large, a 2.5% GDP environment is good for fixed income and, and for credit. So are you holding less cash than you uh, had been perhaps a year ago? We are. We are fully invested. Uh, Our view is that uh, this fundamental environment is good for credit. Uh, Layer on to that a strong technical environment. There is a strong bid for yield globally. And so uh, when there are investors looking for yield, there are buyers of loans in high yield, which is where we traffic. And so we want to take advantage of that by being fully invested. Have you also gone further down the credit spectrum into uh, lower rated uh, high yield debt like triple C, single B? That's a good question. We are a uh, fundamental bottoms up credit shop at New Fleet. Uh, We started adding credit risk in the summer of 2016. Uh, we were risk off in 15 and late 14, started adding risk around the summer of 16 when valuations were were attractive, uh, not only in the loan market, but in the high yield market as well. Uh, we added single Bs and some triple Cs. We started adding energy. Um, today, I would say that we're um, less risk on a peer relative basis, uh, but I'm um, going to stick with our credit quality uh, bent right now. I wonder if you could tell people a little bit about the Virtus New Fleet Dynamic Credit ETF and how, if you're an issuer, how do you get your attention to actually buy some debt to go into that ETF? Sure. So that's an ETF that we launched last December, uh, BLHY is the ticker symbol. Uh, That is a product that was born out of a a few things. Uh, First, we'll take the market. Uh, What we found was that the loan market and the high yield market uh, has slowly been converging. Uh, If they're not brothers and sisters, they're definitely cousins. Uh, There are loans now that look like bonds. Uh, There are bonds that, uh, you know, 20% of the bond market, the high yield market, for example, is secured now. And so, And 50% of the borrowers have both a loan and a high-yield security. And so our view was that we ought to have a product that can look at the entire capital structure of a borrower rather than a fund that can just buy loans and a fund that can just buy bonds. If we like a particular part of the capital structure, we want the ability to buy it. Uh, What we also found was that the client was moving in this direction as well. Clients are now willing to outsource the complexity of allocating between the two they want to put a dollar into leverage finance, yeah. allow us to do the allocation, and then allow themselves to 
frankly, run their run their practice. Frank, in the notes that you sent over, you said that it's important for this asset class to be a permanent part of people's portfolios. How do you square that idea of investing, truly investing in a company for the long term with an ETF that is frequently used for uh, traders who want to be able to get in and out? Yeah, the ETF that we manage is active. And so from our perspective, we manage the ETF very similar to we do than we would a mutual fund. Right. But it, so it is active and it's unclear at any given time what the underlying composition will be the way that, say, HYG or, or JNK right. would. Uh, but the point of an ETF in large part is taking, in, in this case, assets that don't trade all that frequently and uh, sort of pulling them together and then having uh, them sort of backing a, a share that trades like a stock and people can get out quickly. Does that concern you? It's not too dissimilar than the mutual fund market, right? Every morning we come in and we have an inflow or an outflow from the day before. The real difference is that we can create units on the ETF side at any time of the day. Uh, but if there is an environment where people are selling loans in high yield, we'll have an outflow in the mutual funds and we'll have a redemption unit in, in the ETF. So from my perspective, we're managing liquidity, the liquidity risk, um, really very similarly in, in, in both products. I wonder if you could just go back to the Virtus uh, New Fleet Dynamic Credit ETF, because I just want to understand what guides your action? How do you know what to buy? What do you need to know to put you know, different different issues in there. Because you got one, Walter Investment Management, right? Yes. That's currently in bankruptcy. That's right. Right? But then you've got others like Gates Global, that's, I believe, a Blackstone deal. How? What, what sort of drives your decision-making? Sure. So we have a team of 11 credit analysts, uh, and those analysts look at the entire capital structure of a borrower. So the banks, the arranging banks, syndicate whether it's a loan or a high yield issue, and we do our own fundamental credit analysis. Uh, what makes us different is that uh, Walter Investment Management is a great, great example. Uh, we own the loan uh, rather than the, hot, than the bond issuance. Uh, the bond is in the 50s, the loan is in the mid 90s, and will be a par recovery. So we actively decided to be up the capital structure in that name um, as, as an example. There are uh, borrowers that don't have bonds. There are you know, bond issuers that don't have loans. We now have the ability to look at the entire opportunity set, two trillion plus uh, of loans in high yield rather than individual markets. I'm looking at uh, the composition of the fund and there is a, a, a significant proportion that's rated triple C or lower uh, or, or single B or lower. And I'm just wondering, you know, we've seen that say with uh, with Third Avenue, right? The idea of uh, what happens if there are a sudden rash of redemptions, even if it's a mutual fund. Yep. Uh, what's your sort of uh, game plan? if there were to be some kind of crisis. Yeah, I, I would not categorize the single Bs and triple Cs that we own here as the Third Avenue uh, event. Um, these are uh, single B, by and large, loans. The triple Cs might be uh, larger loans. Walter Investment Management, for example, it would, would be one of those stress situations. Um, in ETF form, uh, there are liquidity guidelines we need to have uh, a certain market cap, public market cap. The loan issue has to be a certain size. Uh, we manage a similar product on the mutual fund size that uh, has roughly 70% of the issues are over a billion dollars. And so we're actively managing that type of liquidity rather than a one-off distress situation uh, like, like many of the names that maybe were in the Third Avenue deal. 
Thanks for being with us. Much appreciated. Very educational. Frank Osino is the uh, Senior Portfolio Manager for New Fleet Asset Management, helping to uh, manage about uh, $12 billion in assets. They are, built, they are uh, based in Hartford, uh, Connecticut. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.